Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes, at nicoleabadie.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. My name's Nicole Abadie, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Books, Books, Books Sydney Law School podcast series, in which I'll be interviewing a wide range of Sydney Law School academics about their latest books and work. We'll be covering many different fields, including criminal law, international humanitarian law, competition law and constitutional law. I hope that you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I have enjoyed having them. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the second episode of the Books, Books, Books Sydney Law School podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Arlie Loughnan, Professor of Criminal Law and Criminal Law Theory, about her most recent book, Self, Others and the State, Relations of Criminal Responsibility, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020 as part of its Law in Context series. Before we start with our discussion, I'd like to give you a little bit more information about Arlie. Ali joined Sydney Law School in 2007. She's a graduate of the University of Sydney, New York University Law School and the London School of Economics. Her research concerns criminal law and the criminal justice system. Her particular interests are criminal responsibility, the interaction of legal and expert medical knowledges and the historical development of the criminal law. And she touches on all of those in the book that we're going to be talking about today. Ali has been a member of the New South Wales Law Society's Criminal Law Committee and the New South Wales Bar's Professional Conduct Committee. In 2010, she served as a member of the panel of expert advisors for the New South Wales Law Reform Commission reference on complicity. She's currently on the editorial boards of the Journal of Criminal Law and Current Issues in Criminal Justice. Ali's last book was called Manifest Madness. Mental Incapacity in Criminal Law, and it was published by Oxford University Press in 2012. Ali, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you very much, Nicole. Now, I'm going to start with what is going to seem to you to be a very fundamental question, but we're going to assume that some people listening don't have a good understanding of the area of law that you write about. So I'd like you to start by talking a bit about this concept of criminal responsibility, and in particular, you make the point that there are two dimensions to it. Um, The first dimension is that it deals with how and when you hold someone account for particular behaviour, what you call responsibility attribution. And the second dimension is the form or the structure of the law, its corpus. So could you just explain a bit about the concept and of the concept of criminal responsibility and those two dimensions? Yes, absolutely. So this is really important, Nicole, because we tend to use the words criminal responsibility rather loosely. Sometimes we're talking about it as a synonym for liability for the kind of outcome of a criminal process. But in actual fact, the way scholars use the term is very distinct. And as you mentioned, it has two dimensions. One is probably better known, I think, responsibility attribution, the idea of holding someone to account. So in other words, usually an individual being called to account for their actions through a criminal process like a trial. And the criminal process um, may result in a conviction, in which case the person has been found to have the requisite kind of capacities, if you like, to be responsible. And it's on that basis that liability sits. But there's another dimension of criminal responsibility. And this is, as you said, that it relates to the corpus of the law. So in other words, it's something of a bit of a substructure, we could say, perhaps a skeleton of of a body. You don't see it, but it's there. And the way to understand this is to think about something that, if you like, subtends the parts of the criminal law we do see. So offences and defences, excuses, justifications, they're based on an idea, if you like, that there's something underpinning the, the individual parts of the criminal law that bring them together. And that's the other dimension of criminal responsibility. Ali, in your introduction, you talk about the aims of your book. And I'd like you just to discuss that a little bit. Tell us, what did you set out to do with this book? 
So, so this book, Nicole, which is the result of a, a long period of reflection and um, uh, work on criminal responsibility that was possible because of an ARC, Australian Research Council, fellowship I was fortunate to have, and I'd like to acknowledge that, um, came about because I thought there was something more to say about a topic that has been subject to a lot of talk. Um, criminal responsibility is a very um, important topic in legal scholarship, um, but there's a tendency to focus in on one particular approach to legal scholarship, and that I call in the book legal philosophical approaches. So these are approaches that connect criminal law to moral philosophy or political philosophy. And my own background is as an historian, and so I was really keen to bring that particular perspective to the topic of criminal responsibility. So what I had as an aim in this book was twofold. I aimed to focus attention on the historical and social dimensions of criminal responsibility and to do so in the context of the Australian criminal law. An Australian criminal law is not usually part of the um, study of criminal responsibility because it's been undertaken mostly by scholars working in other jurisdictions. So it felt important to me as a scholar based in Australia to be able to bring the jurisdictional specificity, if you like, to the table for the topic of criminal responsibility. Mm, you talk about the two limitations in existing critical scholarship um, and the, the limits of time and of space. So in terms of time, existing scholarship, you say, focuses on developments really up until the end of the 19th century. You, you say that it, it sees the 20th century as a postscript. And you make the point also that there's an emphasis geographically on the North, on the UK, on Canada, on the US. But what you've done here is to look closely at 20th century developments and the significance of those. And also you focus geographically on Australia, on, on Australia, the Commonwealth or federal jurisdiction, as well as the different state and territory jurisdictions. Why was it important for you to have that geographical and um, temporal focus? So, Nicole, as a critical scholar, um, the kind of context in which law operates is really important. And that context is social, historical, um, institutional, economic, or, or, or what have you. And so, when you're studying criminal responsibility, you have an authorial choice, if you like, to set your study at different degrees of abstraction. And I decided to set my own study very close to the ground, as I put it in the book. And that made it possible to look, if you like, down in the weeds for some of the kind of interesting developments that have happened on the ground in the Australian context that are otherwise, I think, falling um, outside the purview of, of studies of responsibility. So. That impetus led me to focus particularly on the 20th century, a time frame in which I could, which I could bite off, if you like, within the scope of a sole authored book, and also to focus on Australia so that I could, if you like, add some jurisdictions to the to the conversation. Because as you point out, Nicole, there's a, or as you mentioned, there's a dominance of um, of jurisdictions from the north in this field. I was wondering, Ali, has there been interest from overseas in your book? Have you talked about it overseas? It's Cambridge University Press. I'm assuming it's sold in the UK. Yes, Nicole, yes. It's one of those um, fortunate things, I think, that among academics, even if we're dispersed widely across the globe, we share interests um, and that means that there has been pickup and um, interest in the book from a number of interesting quarters and I'm, I'm really delighted about that. I I think it's really um, a lovely part of being a scholar that you feel a connection to people, even if they're far away or working on something that might only be somewhat related. Now, I want to just describe, and I'm using your words, your central thesis, your central argument, and then I want to ask you to unpack that a little bit. So your argument is criminal responsibility plays a particular role that has been overlooked in existing scholarship. And that is this, your argument is this, that criminal responsibility organises key sets of relations between three bodies, if you like, individuals, other and the state as relations of responsibility and that it is that aspect of criminal responsibility which makes it so significant. Could you just unpack that a little bit? Could you talk a little bit about that thesis, which, if I've understood it correctly, is the central thesis of your book? Yes, indeed. That's right, Nicole. Um, I think that the important uh, sort of background story here is that 
because there's so much attention on criminal responsibility in the scholarship, it's easy to assume that its significance must be unqualified. We must all have the same view of its significance. It must be important in the same way, if you like. But in actual fact, I think that people's uh, approach to criminal responsibility significance varies. And so in the book, I cover some of the key approaches that people have taken to understanding the significance of criminal responsibility. And then I, I offer my own. And as you rightly point out, I argue in the book that criminal responsibility is significant because it organises relations between self, others and the state as relations of responsibility. And what this argument involves is a claim that beneath the kind of doctrines and practices that make up criminal responsibility, we actually see relations between individuals and the state organised through the law, if you like. And this is important because it's only an approach that is, I guess, connected to time and space that allows that kind of richer or deeper significance of criminal responsibility to emerge. When criminal responsibility is understood in fairly abstract, moral um, uh, con uh, um, terms, in other words, as related to moral norms, for instance, we wouldn't see the kind of social life, as I call it, of criminal responsibility. And it's only when you think about criminal responsibility as located in time and space that you get to see this deeper significance of criminal responsibility. So as I mentioned, the idea here is that criminal responsibility is part of the social life of the criminal law. It's what helps us um, plot out relations between individuals and the state. And another point of context here, Nicole, is that sometimes one way of thinking about the criminal law is to say that it governs relations between subjects and objects. So subjects being people, generally speaking, sometimes corporations, and objects being prohibited conduct or behaviours. So a, a kind of a law that connects the person to the conduct or prevents the person from undertaking the conduct. And so if that's what the criminal law does, then criminal responsibility as this kind of substratum that I mentioned is doing something different. It's connecting or plotting relations between individuals and the state, between relations of responsibility, as I put it. Mm. What you then do, and I'm I've said it to you and I will say it to people listening. There's so much in your book. Unfortunately, we can't cover all of it. But what I've decided to focus on is that, that your consideration of each of these relations, as it were, the self, others and the state, and you have separate chapters on each of those and you also talk about them in other chapters. So let's start then with the self. So you make the point that the self exists in context and that it's very important to acknowledge the relevance of social norms, of institutions and practices. And you have elected to explore what you call the gendered self by focusing on women's responsibility for crime, which you say is marked by both particularity and specificity. And you make the point that that challenges what's usually suggested about um, criminal responsibility, namely that it is general and it's universal. So my first question was, why did you choose this particular area, um, the, the evolving law of homicide as, it's, as it relates to women's responsibility for crime? And we're going to talk about the actual laws in a moment, but I was first interested to know why you chose that particular lens. Thanks, Nicole. Yes. Yeah, so the focus here is, as you say, on the gendered aspect of the self. And that's because the self is so often in criminal responsibility literature treated as non-gendered. Um, and so it seems very important to um, complement that existing scholarship with a focus on gender. The particular focus on homicide was because of this homicide was a site of quite a lot of legal activity over the 20th century. And we only have to think back to um, the advent of the car and popular um, practices of driving to think about the development of dangerous driving laws. More recently, of course, we've had one-punch laws. But in between time, we had a whole series of other developments in homicide that made it a really rich site for looking at change over time. So what you look at, you consider really that two of the, two of the major reforms in homicide law in the context of women's responsibility for crime, and those are the law in relation to diminished responsibility as it developed really in the first half of the 20th century, 
and then the shift or the recasting um, of women's violence as responsive, which happened more in the late 20th century and the early 21st century. So I'd like to go to the first of those first, and that is the law of diminished responsibility. Now, that is a partial defence to murder, and related to it is the battered women's syndrome, which you also talk about. Um, I'd like you to just tell us a little bit about those those areas, those developments in the law of homicide in the socio-historical context that you describe so richly. So the first half of the 20th century, Nicole, is actually a really interesting time because it's only when you look at criminal responsibility through a gendered lens that you see that two of the major developments in that period, both of which come under the label of partial responsibility, were actually connected to women. The first of these was infanticide, which mm. was legislated in the in the 20s and 30s in the UK and then from the 50s onwards, uh, 49 and onwards in Australia. And as you mentioned, diminished responsibility, which was borrowed from the Scots law and introduced into the UK and Australia in the mid-century period. These two developments, which are often understood, if you like, only on their own terms, are actually connected because it was as a need to accommodate a different kind of responsibility, a partial responsibility on the face of the law that necessitated the developments of these particular partial defences. It seems strange to us now, but we have to remember back to that time that the advent of psychological and psychiatric knowledge was still uh, relatively emergent and making its impact on the law only in, if you like, newly felt ways. And so infanticide and diminished responsibility were an attempt I argue in the book, to accommodate these developing knowledges with a renewed emphasis on individual responsibility as was coming through in the law. I should have mentioned infanticide as well because you make the connection between that and diminished responsibility. And I'd like you just to talk a little bit because that's not something that a lot of people would be familiar with, that infanticide and how it operates. But as I understand it, as you explain it, in the case of both that and diminished responsibility, the thesis behind them is that the defendant, the accused woman, is suffering from an abnormality of the mind which impairs her responsibility. Could you talk a bit about that, about the, the connection between the two, infanticide and diminished responsibility, in and as what you call the pathologising? Absolutely. So they're they're connected because they're both based on an idea of a pathological subject, a subject with diminished or reduced responsibility for her actions. And that seemed to be, if you like, a necessary accommodation of a particular kind of subjectivity at the time. It seemed like the full force of the law would not be appropriate in certain contexts, contexts in which, as in infanticide, a woman had killed her own child within the first year of life, or in the case of diminished responsibility, where someone had committed what would otherwise be murder, but in circumstances in which her own accountability was reduced. And this kind of accommodation was seen in some ways as benevolent. But with the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to, easier to see that there was a really, um, it was a double-edged sword. So there was a kind of accommodation in part of women who um, uh, was amenable to a kind of merciful approach of the law, but there was also difficulty associated with, say, for example, women who didn't meet a gendered stereotype about the way women behave in certain contexts, like the context of having um, killed an infant child or the context of having committed what would otherwise be murder. So with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that natural fact, this pathologization of women's violence was, if you like, achieved at a cost. And it's only in the second half of the century that we see a different dynamic develop. But in that, in relation, and I know we'll go on to that, in relation to the first half of the century, when you look at those developments as um, through the idea of relations of responsibility, what you see is that the developments in the law were attempting, I think, this is what I argue in the book, to create a kind of a relationship between the woman and her, herself. So in other words, it sounds funny to have a relationship with yourself, but what I mean there is that the idea was to kind of have a sort of sense of individual integrity, psychologized integrity, such that the criminal law could reconcile the idea of a person who committed these kinds of offences 
only through a concept of partial responsibility, diminished or reduced responsibility. So could you just explain to us, um, Ali, the practical effects? So it was diminished responsibility. That It wasn't a defence to murder, was it? Yes, it was. It so, was. And it is still, and under the name substantial impairment by reason of abnormality of mind. So it, what it does, Nicole, is introduce discretion to the court, enabling a conviction, but then sentencing as if the offence was manslaughter. And what about infanticide? How did that operate in practice? So infanticide, unusual because it's both an offence and a defence. It is possible to be charged with infanticide, but it's not that common. It's more likely, although still not common, to be raised by the defence as a response to a murder charge. And that then is, again, it operates as a partial defence, meaning that it um, allows someone who successfully raises infanticide to be convicted as if for manslaughter. And that's relevant to sentencing. And I think you also made the point, which I hadn't really got onto, but which is a really good one, that that was hugely significant because um, potentially people could be sentenced to death for murder. And so that obviously ameliorated that position. That's exactly right, Nicole. And that was really important, not just for the reasons that we might like to think now that people were opposed to the death penalty, but also because people were being sentenced, being convicted of these offences like murder of, a, of an infant baby or another kind of murder, and the sentences were not being carried out. And so the idea there that was that women were attracting mercy or sympathy, we could put it that in different ways, but they were also, according to at least some quarters, effectively bringing the law into disrepute mm. because sentences were handed down and then not carried out. And so the mm. idea of carving out these supposedly benevolent parts of criminal law for pathologised women was not entirely benevolent. Mm. And then you discussed this very important shift in the last decades of the 20th century, this move from the concept of um, diminished responsibility to a greater, well, as a result of a greater knowledge of violence against women, we'll talk about that, the recasting of women's violence as being responsive, as being reactive to male violence, either actual or threatened. And so, as you point out, the context is really crucial. Could you tell us about the shift, that the shift to the recasting of violence as responsive and what the changes were to the homicide law in consequence or to the law of homicide in consequence of that? Yes, absolutely. So as you mentioned, Nicole, this shift took place in the second half of the century and the, the, the major dynamic of driving the law in the first half of the century, violence by women, became a dynamic of violence against women. And in this context, the profile of domestic violence, the profile of sexual assault and the activism of the women's movement around those issues pushed change in the law of homicide to again accommodate women in distinctive ways, but this time because there was greater recognition of women's violence as, if you like, as I said, responsive and as you put it too. In other words, understandable, comprehensible, only in the context of what had gone on before. And so here what I'm arguing is that changes in the law can again be seen to have a, this deeper kind of structure or deeper motivations. And here the motivation is an attempt to accommodate women who maybe respond with violence when they have been faced with violence and should therefore not be subject to the full force of the law. So here, new kinds of distinctive forms, atypical forms as I call them in the book, of uh, laws appear, but this time they're laws like excessive self-defence. Tell us about that. What is that? So excessive self-defence, it seems a little bit of a, um, a funny um, term because, of course, self-defence is, as a, is, as you know, a complete defence, something that is seen um, to apply when someone has used proportionate force to the threat that they faced. Excessive self-defence is has the ingredients of self-defence, but the force is not proportionate. So the person has been excessive in their use of force in response. Is there also the temporal issue that with self-defence it must be an immediate response. Could you talk about that as well? Yes. So, so you're right to say, Nicole, that historically self-defence was restricted to someone who responded immediately to the threat. Even or around the same time that excessive self-defence was developed in the criminal law in Australia, there were movements in self-defence to better accommodate women's responses 
as they as was understood, they, they were more likely to be a kind of case of slow burn so that you might only respond to an attack when you could, for instance, when mm. someone was asleep or mm. when you had access to a weapon, as, as the case may be. But and the issue of proportionality as well, that's really important, isn't it? That, again, as I understand it, what what um, militated against women, what operated against women in this context is that the particular force that they might have used ultimately would come at the end of a cumulative long period of uh, use of force against them, but it was measured, the one was measured only against the other at that time. But the, am I right in saying that that the excessive self-defence accommodated more the history, the, the build-up of the use of violence? So... It, it doesn't in some ways, Nicole, and that, of course, that, that idea that violence could have built up over a long period of time is also something that was a feature of provocation before provocation was reformed. But it's important to mention here that when self, excessive self-defence was first introduced into the criminal law in Australia, it wasn't actually in response to women's violence. It was in relation to householder violence, for instance, but it was it was removed from the criminal law in the mid-century period as seen, being seen as inconsistent with principle um, and later reintroduced because of the kinds of issues you were talking about, Nicole, that there seemed to be this need for something that was a halfway house, if you like, between full self-defence and no defence. And this excessive self-defence then functions as a partial defence, again, reducing murder to manslaughter and applying in the kinds of cases that you mentioned where people might have responded to an attack perhaps with knowledge of previous attacks and with knowledge of the kind of possible threats, but then in doing so used a weapon when the other person had no weapon or responded in a way that wasn't proportionate. And that's when excessive self-defence is valuable. Um, of course, it's important to point out that if you're a defendant, it's much more valuable to have something like full self-defence because, of course, that results in an acquittal. But in understanding the dynamics in the law, it's really important, I think, to situate excessive self-defence and something like defensive homicide, which was introduced in Victoria, in this context of responding to a need to recognise the context in which women were using violence and to, to um, amend the law so that there was an accommodation of the kind of specific, specific kind of responsibility that was involved there. So the concept of excessive self-defence meant that you were sentenced effectively for manslaughter rather than for murder. So the, the impact was on the sentencing, which could be much, um, I don't want to use the word lenient, I guess much less harsh. Yes, exactly, Nicole, that's right. And the way I suggest we should understand these developments in the, in the criminal law is as connected to different kinds of subjectivities. Mm. So as I mentioned earlier, the kind of, gendered subjectivity of the first half of the century was this pathological self where the law was operating to reconcile a certain idea about psychological um, states with the emphasis on individual responsibility. But by the second half of the century where we had a greater knowledge of the context in which women's violence occurs, the self had become understood in relations with others. The self was seen as uh, connect is seen, I think now as connected to, say, for example, um, the protection that is available to women who are victims or survivors of domestic violence, the police, prosecution services, etc. And so women's autonomy is now not seen as kind of reduced or partial, but rather as dependent on or in need of kind of actualization in part through state agencies like police or prosecution. So what we see, I think, is a different kind of idea of the gendered self here. It's a it's a self in relation to um, the kind of state agencies which are just, which are supposed to be in place to protect women. And when they fail to do so, and women have resorted to violence to protect themselves or their children, then the the law is amended in order to accommodate that in distinctive ways. And Ali, I want us to talk a little bit about this in the context of your broader thesis. You talk about both of these examples of the diminished responsibility in the first half of the century and infanticide, and then the second half of the century, the evolution of the law of excessive self-defence and provocation. You talk about these as generating atypical responsibility, a term that you mentioned earlier. What do you mean by that? And what is the significance of that atypical responsibility for criminal responsibility, more broadly speaking? Very good question, Nicole. Atypical responsibility is something of an unlovely term, we could say, but it was chosen deliberately because 
the clue is in the term. So these types of responsibility are not the norm, not the typical types of responsibility. And the reason for that is because what they do is enmesh together things that are usually separate. So they mix justification and excuse. They mix offence and defence. They mix, if you like, aspects of context into kinds of issues of of, um, law. So these um, atypical responsibility forms look different to the kinds of responsibility forms we're used to seeing in the criminal law. So, for instance... Which, as you say, are universal and general. That's the real difference, isn't it? It's exactly right, Nicole. So they make women or they are evidence that women's responsibility is specific and particular rather than universal and general because women's responsibility is being accommodated through these types of um, legal forms that are, if you like, quite um, specific. They're not available to everyone in every context. And, of course, it's a hallmark of the modern criminal law that an offence is something that can be committed by anyone at any time and a defence is something that anyone should have access to. But Mm. when we look at gendered um, aspects of the self and criminal responsibility, we look at women's responsibility, we see that that's quite a different story. And you argue, I think it's a really interesting argument when you're looking at this in your the context of your broader thesis that the relationship between self and others in the state, that the development of the homicide in law in this way in relation to women's responsibility for crime is in effect an admission of failure by the state to properly protect women from violence. Would you like to talk a bit about that? Yes. This is a really important dimension of the argument because it's an attempt to understand what's going on, if you like, um, when we look beyond the particular individual doctrinal developments. And I do argue that these these recent developments have what I call an ameliorative tenor. They are, if you like, the kind of developments that represent failure, as you put it, Nicole, to to otherwise protect women. Because as I argue in the book, by the time women are trying to access defences like um, excessive self-defence or what was an offence, defensive homicide, offence-defence combination in Victoria when it was part of the law, the law, the, the state has failed because women have had to protect themselves from violence in a way that um, say, for means the police have not been able to protect that individual or other methods and, and processes like ABOs have not been sufficient. So these particular developments in the law are, if you like, an admission of state failure. They are an attempt to mop up for what has not happened before. By the time a woman is in the dock for the kinds of retaliatory violence that is the subject of my inquiry here, it's because other mm. systems and processes have not failed to satisfactory. Yeah. All right, let's move to your second discussion of others. And in considering others, you you note that often when you're talking about others in the context of criminal law, the discussion is in the context of complicity, which I know you've done a lot of work on. But you've chosen uh, in this book to focus instead on the law or the offence of consorting. So, again, for a lot of people won't be familiar with exactly what that offence is. Could you tell us about the offence? And I know, and we're going to come to talk to the fact that uh, that there have been really, as you argue, two generations. But broadly speaking, what's the offence? And we'll, we'll come to talk about that. But broadly speaking, what is the offence of consorting? So, so consorting, broadly understood, is associating with criminals, Nicole. So it's something that, if you like, in the lay parlance, we might um, use casually, but As an offence, it means that you have um, been associating with, um, as it used to be known, a known criminal. Now there's much more sort of procedural strictures around Mm. it, but it's in keeping bad company, we could say, if we were to use a lay expression. Now, why did you choose to focus on that particular offence? So for two reasons, Nicole. One is that Australia has the rather unenviable reputation or rather unenviable role of having significantly expanded consorting laws in the colonial period. These were something that had come up in the the early modern period as a way of dealing with um, uh, labour because, of course, the demise of the feudal system meant that uh, people were free to move their labour around and consorting became a way of regulating people who were seen as threats to the social order. In the colonial context, consorting turned out to be very useful, Used the term used advisedly, 
to govern relations between our white Australians and Indigenous Australians mm. and also to maintain order in what was, of course, fairly disorderly contexts of colonial outposts. Um, when consorting laws were used in the Australian context, they were extended in ways that were useful in the colonial colonial um, era. So in what way, um, Ali, can you give examples of that? And you talk about it in your book, as you say, as a means of control in those early colonial days in relation to relations between European settlers and Indigenous or Aboriginal people. In what way? Give us an example. So consorting laws were used, for instance, to pre prevent cohabitation between blacks and whites, um, to prevent, say, for example, people who were then known as prostitutes, we would now say sex workers, from um, being in good, com good company, again, used advisedly, um, to prevent people who were of no fixed abode from kind of being in a particular town or what have you when they were otherwise able to be moved on by the local constable. Um, so consorting turned out to have all these extra functions, if extra utility, if you like, for governing relations between individuals and others. In and what time period are we talking about there? Is it the is it the 19th century? Is it the early 20th century? So we're looking at the early 20th century. Yeah, exactly right. And the kinds of things that were absolutely acceptable at that time and well into the mid-century period were things like the police being the ones to say that you were a known thief. <laughs> so in other words, what evidence did you have for this particular charge and mm. conviction? Well, you had the evidence of the police who were, of mm. course, charged with the, one, the ones who were, of course, bringing the prosecution in the first place. So you had all these sort of rules. Do you have to have been convicted? I, I mean, you do talk about this, but I can't remember the answer. Is a known thief someone who's been convicted of being a thief or is somebody that has a reputation for being a thief? Has someone who has a reputation, Nicole, and of course, who judges that reputation? Mm. <laughs> the police. But what's interesting about the developments of the laws in the second part of the period is that, of course, that becomes absolutely unacceptable. And uh, it, it, it becomes unacceptable because, of course, it goes to show that disadvantage and discrimination would be sort of embedded in the law. And the laws for the consorting laws for a time become much less useful, again, used advisedly to the police because they become harder to prove. In the earlier period, they were very easy to prove and they were quite a useful backup offence when you couldn't get someone for something else. So as one example of that, Ali, you talk about the use of the word habitual. So it's not enough that you consort, you've got to consort habitually, and then there's an evidentiary issue about what or what isn't habitual consorting. Exactly right, Nicole. And, of course, then all the debates, yes, come about how many times you have to have consorted with others. Um, but consorting itself is very loaded because, as one judge put it, there's no such thing as innocent consorting. So consorting itself would already be something that would be um, describing particular kind of conduct. And that turned out to have a very significant um, corollary in the latter part of the century and the early 20th, 21st century, when, of course, when the laws were reformulated and used for more high-level offences rather than low-level offences, they became very useful for dealing with bikey violence, gang violence on the part of motorcycle clubs. And their consorting, of course, meant that people with... Um, gang membership or bikey group membership were not able to hang out with each other. But there was one um, rather notorious instance where one um, lawyer advised his clients not to go to court at the same time because that might be an instance of consorting. So, <laughs> so. You, you make that point that you divide them into, and it's a temporal division, first generation and second generation consorting laws. And so the first generation consorting laws, the early ones, you make a really important point that the focus there apparently, allegedly, was on public protection. But you then talk about the second generation offences and you've just given one example of um, meetings between people in bikey gangs. First of all, they were it was a more serious offence by that stage. But you make a really important point. The focus has by this stage changed from public protection and protection of the community to the security of the state. And you argue in your context of your broader argument about responsibility that here the responsibility that individuals bear to the state is equated with their responsibility to each other. And you say that the state is in effect posited as if it was a friend. I'd just like you to talk a little bit about that, please. Yes, so this is this is the central argument of this particular part of the book, Nicole, because, again, it's about relations of responsibility. I argue that under the first generation of consorting laws, the kind of consorting laws we were talking about a moment ago, 
the the core concern was with the sort of the low level crime that threatened the social order. But by the time the consorting laws are reinvented, the concern is with high level offences that are going to the security of the state. Things like allegiance to uh, an organisation that is involved in organised crime, for instance. By this point, consorting is one of the weapons, if you like, in the armoury of um, laws that are designed to target really serious organised crime. By this time, these kinds of offences are thought of as very serious threats to the security of the state, as well as, of course, to the safety of individuals within the state. It's particularly important, I think, to understand here that by this point, what the laws are asking, what I argue the laws are asking us to do is to choose allegiance to the state rather than allegiance to the friends, as I use the term, who would otherwise be um, uh, your associates because you are effectively being criminalised for for association with those particular individuals and you're being asked to assume or assimilate the goals of the state, which are, of course, to prevent this kind of uh, criminal, organised criminal activity. So I use the term friendship with the state. It's very evocative. What it's meant to do is to suggest that the kinds of uh, things one is responsible for and to whom those things have changed. So instead of being responsible, if you like, for a kind of keeping the peace, a social order issue, the kinds of people who are being targeted with these laws are actually being seen to threaten the state. And the kinds of things they're responsible for are much, much more extended. They are now going to the kinds of um, high-level offences, high-level threats that we're talking about. And what's being asked of an individual is to have the kind of mentality that sees that as a threat as well. So you don't hang out with those people with a criminal charge, as is now part of the law. Rather, you choose not to because that is the kind of those are the goals of the state, I guess. That's a, a really fascinating analysis. All right, let's move to the third then, the state itself. And you examine the state in relations of responsibility through the lens of government, government responses to allegations of institutional child abuse with a particular focus on public inquiries. And you say that you chose to focus on that area for a number of reasons, but one reason you say is that it is the preeminent collective reckoning with state responsibility in Australia. Could you talk about that and what you mean by that? Yes, I think it's it's hard to go past the idea that child sexual abuse, particularly that that occurs in institutions, is the kind of um, moral um, heart of the criminal law now, the kind of offending that we see as so reprehensible that it demands responses from us all. And so this focus in this chapter was an attempt to look behind the usual focus of criminal responsibility scholarship, the trial, and see the way in which actually criminal responsibility is the product of a certain kind of division of labour between individuals and the state to see that, in fact, actually, individual responsibility is in relation to another kind of responsibility, a, a state responsibility. And that they can coexist. That's your point, isn't it? They can coexist exactly right, Nicole, and that they're in a dynamic relationship. So there's a change over time in the way we might see individuals as having a certain kind of responsibility and the state having another kind of responsibility. Now, you trace, you, you say that the state, as you say, the state's position has been dynamic and you really trace the history through the 20th century, through four four historical positions that the state has taken. We're just going to focus on the most recent and that is what you argue with a lot of evidence to support you is a much greater willingness by government, by the state, to assume responsibility uh, for crimes committed against children in institutions. I'm going to come in a moment to the one one of the particular um, public inquiries that you talk about, and that's the Federal Royal Commission into Inst Institutional Response to Child Sex Abuse. But just broadly speaking, what do you think, what's brought about this change? What has led to, in these um, the last few decades, I guess, an in increased acceptance by the state of responsibility for physical and sexual abuse within institutions. Why is the government now more prepared to take responsibility for that than it was historically? So I think that the way to understand that, Nicole, is to contrast it with the, the era that immediately preceded it. And that was the era in which there was a kind of complex mix of both assuming and denying responsibility. And we can think back to 
John Howard's response to the stolen generations, for instance, and the claim that you current governments could not be responsible for past behaviours. That complex mix of assuming and denying responsibility, I argue, was played out across an idea of empire and nation. So an idea that Australia was part of the British Empire through which many of these policies were implemented. And equally, Australia is now a nation standing on its own. And so there's a sort of a complex interplay here between the way in which one might assume responsibility in the contemporary as a contemporary kind of actor and the way in which one might deny responsibility for the past. But in the most recent period, as you point out, Nicole, that's changed. And I think the reason that we've got a much more fulsome recognition of state responsibility in this context is partly the kind of um, a social phenomenon of the victims movement, which has, of course, brought stories and accounts to the fore that were not previously known. And as you know, in the book, I argue that one of the important things that's changed in public inquiries is that we now hear from victim Mm. survivors and those inquiries that took place in the early part of the 20th century were notable for their reliance on experts who may or may not have had much to do with the institution at all. And it was incredible to be reminded of that. uh, That really hit me to then those early inquiries. They heard from experts and people within the institutions, but nobody thought to ask the kids or the, the survivors themselves. And and as we know, Nicole, from the from the kind of media coverage of these um, really important public inquiries now with the really the apex was the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Assault, those stories are so um troubling, so trauma, so difficult to hear that there's kind of been, I think, a public recognition that we must not shy away from this, that this is this is something where we must recognize the role of the state, even beyond the role of individuals who, as we know, utilised and exploited the the systems that were in place to commit offences. There's now, I think, a recognition, partly as a result of the pathologisation of those individuals. Which was a bit the same as the pathologising of the women who commit violence. Exactly. So we now see that it's not enough to focus on those individuals. It doesn't, I think, another ingredient in the dynamic here is that, of course, some of those individuals have, have died. And so, therefore, we need to sort of look elsewhere for how we might get a kind of reckoning in this in this context. But I think there's now much greater awareness that and acceptance that this is a state matter. And of course, this is not just an Australian kind of development. We can see global trends in the same direction. And it was, of course, um, developments in Canada in relation to residential schools. We see there's currently a Royal Commission in, in New Zealand. We see these same kinds of um, inquiries that are exposing the kind of extent of the harm that was that took place. And you make a really interesting point about what you call this collective reckoning. And you say that responsibility, as you say, you make a couple, a couple of points, that responsibility is shared obviously between the government and between the individual, as you've just said, the actual perpetrator. But it's also shared between the government and, as you say, the public, our entire society. There's a sense that all of us are, to some extent, share the blame. And so when the state responds, it's responding on all of our behalf. And that's something I wanted to ask you about. You discuss in some detail the Federal Royal Commission into Institutional Response to Child Sexual Abuse. Now, that was established by Prime Minister Julia Gillard in 2012, and it reported in 2017. It made 409 recommendations. And you go through some of them, but I wondered if you could just broadly speaking, talk about the government response to that. Yes, I think... In terms of actual practical steps. So I think broadly speaking, the government response has been has been positive in the sense that there's been things like the, the um, redress scheme set up to make sure that people who are still alive can reclaim some funds. And that's, of course, addressed a problem in, in private law in relation to the kinds of um, issues of um, seeking action on your own behalf for victimisation. There's, of course, a little bit of a pullback in relation to the creation of individual offences of committing offences in institutions and the idea that the institution itself could be liable. But that's, of course, quite a a complex issue. I suppose what I think, um, Nicole, is that while we could still point to problems with state response here, we could say that the state response is unprecedented in its acceptance of responsibility in this context. So while we might argue that there needs to be more done or different things done, I think we could accept that this is a this is a sort of historical moment where we see 
we don't accept arguments as much anymore that the, the past is the past and we can't accept responsibility for that. Mm. We know now that trauma is intergenerational, that it's ongoing, and that so such serious wrongs were done that there must be accountability. Ali, to finish, I'd like you I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit about this. You say that the analysis that you've done in this book reveals that criminal responsibility is the means by which matters of subjectivity, relationality, and power make themselves felt in the criminal law. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Thank you, Nicole. Yes. So this is the idea that when one focuses on criminal responsibility as organising relations of responsibility, one sees different things from what would otherwise be apparent with a different approach. And these matters that come to light are the way in which criminal responsibility, as you say, governs subjectivity, the creation of the self, relationality, the position of the self in relation to others, and power. And of course, these key things, relationality, subjectivity, and power, are dynamics that we have to look to find. But when we see them, we realise the incredible um, strength or influence of the law on the way in which we organise our individual and collective lives. And it's clear when you look at criminal responsibility in the deeper way in which I suggest we do in the book, you actually see things that have hitherto now kind of escaped our gaze. So aspects of the self, which are actually about the kind of materiality of existence in the world, aspects about connections to others that go beyond a kind of co-conspirator sense of relations, and of course, power, the really important dynamic which sets up, if you like, the way in which the state, for instance, would have a role in adjudicating decisions and um, ascribing responsibility. These things become evident as, if you like, achieved or realised through the criminal law. And I think, as a critical scholar, that it's a really important account to expose these dimensions that are otherwise hidden. Ali, I wish we could speak for longer. There's a great chapter at the end where you talk about possible future research, which I found really fascinating, but I'm afraid we're going to have to wind up for now. Congratulations on a fine piece of scholarship. It's a fascinating read. It's been a fascinating conversation from my end anyway, and thank you so much for speaking to me. Nicole, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.